Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Holfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Walter Murch, ACE. Murch has been nominated and has won dozens of awards, including Ace Eddies, Oscars, BAFTAs, and Emmys. His IMDb page lists 66 films over six-plus decades. As we sat in a screening room waiting for Coup 53 to start, we talked about follow-up questions that I had about things he'd posited in his books In the Blink of an Eye and his book with Michael Ondatya called The Conversations. You said in The Conversations, the hallmark struggle of every editing room, how short can the film be and still work? Why do we want to make films not too short, but as short as they can be? It's got something to do with uh, the ability of people to sit still for a long period of time. And they do sit amazingly still. If, if you put somebody in that chair, we're sitting in a theater, and said, I just want you to sit still for two hours, it's almost impossible to do it. They start to move around. So what happens when a film is working is that it's hypnotizing them and they're not really in their body. They are abnormally still if a film is working. And yet there are limits to that, just physical limits. And it seems like it's somewhere around two hours, you know, maybe two and a half, maybe, you know, the Irishman is three and a half, <laughs> you know. When a film gets over two hours or two hours and 15 minutes, it, it turns into something else. You know, I just I think it's a mixture of how much you can hold in your mind for two hours, even if it's emotionally engaging, it's, you're working very hard. Um, and just physically to sit still, I mean, that's the whole uh, reason for the, you know, Harry Cohn saying, when a film doesn't work, I feel it in my butt. What's happening is he's not being hypnotized anymore, and so he starts to realize the obvious, which is he's being asked to sit still for an hour and a half or two hours, and he can't, so he starts to move around, and that tells him the film isn't working. He didn't go into that kind of detail, but I think that's physically what, what's happening. You talked about going uh, screening Julia, either in the blink of an eye or in conversations, and and that was for a different reason, but when you go see those screenings with an audience, is that one of those things that you're just inherently looking at is people are not yeah, moving or it, they're starting to yeah, shuffle? Yeah, I think you're feeling that, yeah. It's interesting that despite all of the intrusiveness that uh, we do, that we don't photograph the auditorium with infrared film, which would be a great learning tool, but we just don't do it for whatever mysterious reason. But that's what you're trying to pick up is, 
you have been alone or with a director in an editing room for months and developing your own theories about how the film should be, but now you're experiencing this in a large auditorium with, I don't know, maybe 250 people sometimes, and that puts you in a very different emotional place. And it's a, it's a good thing, really, because now, in a sense, you're looking at the film from a different perspective. It's, it's like if you think of the film as a, as a piece of architecture, as you've been working on it, you're always dealing with it, kind of looking at it from one angle. Mm -hmm. What a preview does is emotionally move you, let's say, 90 degrees or 85 degrees to the right. And so now you're seeing the architectural model Oh, that, that's where the staircase went. And, you know, as obvious as it was, that was just something you didn't realize when you were just alone with the film. So it's, uh, you, you try as an editor to anticipate what the public is going to think when they see the film. You try to put yourself in their shoes, but a preview really allows you to, to do that hormonally in a sense. I've done two interviews recently with people that did say they filmed the audience with infrared. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And, and then synced the film yeah. to the film so that they could right. actually watch in a picture-in-picture, picture, they could actually see people as comedies and horror films. Yeah. On Ghost, I recorded the audience in the preview. And we, in the mix, we were able to play the audience track in the monitor along with the final mix, mainly to be able, because when people laugh, sometimes lines get buried. Mm -hmm. And if you're mixing in an empty movie theater, um, you think, oh, I understand the line. But if 300 people are laughing, you have to push it. So we had a, 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 a button, oh, let's check this against the audience track. And so we were able to turn on that audience sound in the monitor only. It wasn't obviously mm -hmm. being sure. recorded on the finished film. Um, you mentioned uh, Ann Coates, Dee Dee Allen, Thelma Schoonmaker is in a list of 10 of the best editors in the world. What do you think it is about their cutting, the films they've cut, the things that you've seen in the movies that they've cut that, that stands out to you as exceptional? Uh, the only thing I would say is that great line from Thelma. Somebody said, Marty's films are so violent. And she said, they're only violent after I edit them. So, I've know. heard that quote, and that's a great quote uh, mm -hmm. and pretty true. One of the things that I thought about, especially Anne and Thelma, and I've interviewed both of them, is that they agree with your six points of like what makes you know mm -hmm. continuity being the least important right. of them all, and. The, I think of Anne and, and Thelma as certainly in that mm -hmm. camp of right. continuity is yeah, I would not say is Didi, the opposite of Kane. Didi also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah. her films quite as well as the I mean, I two. should just say the obvious, which is that that list of six, which uh, has, has gotten great, much more currency than I ever thought <laughs> it would when I wrote it, uh, the important thing to remember about that is it's not what has to happen at each cut. It's what are what are the considerations? What are the, what are you considering at the moment of the cut? And since we live in the real world, not an ideal world, you're going to usually have to let go of something 
And my recommendation is to let go from the bottom up, uh, let go of three-dimensional continuity first, and then work your way up. And when you get to the top three, try to hold on to them, rhythm, story, and emotion. If you have to sacrifice something, make the cut in a slightly awkward rhythmic location, but that can still have a powerful emotional and you can still grasp the story. Mm -hmm. um, if you have to let go of story for a moment and just go with pure emotion, do that. Uh, but you can't stay there too long. You have to get you have to get grounded again. It's kind of like those moments where when training astronauts, they take them up in B-52 bombers and they do a certain kind of arc which allows you to float within the belly of the plane. So you're weightless for 45 seconds or something, but you can't stay there long. Gravity has to exert its force again. I've heard you say that the, the numerical values you placed on those six yeah, things that, is, but but it is, you know, a little bit facetious, but in reality it makes sense because you're like, well, the top one is the most important, so if you you have to make it 51 it, because... It's more than everything else. Right. It's yeah, I had to make the, the numbers kind of jump to achieve that effect. Hey, I totally understand the numbering system. And while we're at that, I, there's one of them that I do not understand, which is the the 2D planarity. I certainly, explain it, the difference between 3D planarity and, or 3D continuity and 2D continuity. Right, no, 2D is just the 180 degree rule. It's a hard thing for people who, me, when I first mm -hmm. began to study film, it's like you have to kind of make your brain do something strange because in reality we live in a three-dimensional world and we're not aware of this because we're always our own camera, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at two other people from a certain point of view and then cutting to something that is almost 180 degrees opposite to that, uh, what you're doing is taking a three-dimensional reality and compressing it into two dimensions. Yeah. And it has just certain rules in terms of the look. The, the simplest way uh, to deal with that is to forget all of the diagrams that get drawn and just imagine that there's an invisible laser beam coming out uh, from the person's, uh, between their eyebrows, and that's their look. And when you cut to the other person, imagine the complementary laser beam and just make sure that those laser beams intersect in, in your mind. Mm -hmm. Then it's going to work. One of the obligations as an editor is to drench yourself in the sensibilities of the film to the point where you're alive to the smallest details and also the most important themes. I love that comment. Do you want to elaborate on that? I cringe slightly when I go into some editors' editing rooms and what's, what they put on the wall is, are the posters from all the other films that they've cut. And it's kind of bragging, in a sense. It's like saying, I'm exaggerating here, but don't challenge me, look at what I've cut. Or they, they want to feel at home and they had good time on these films, uh, you know, it just... Each film is its own universe, and so I don't have posters of the films I've cut, but I certainly wouldn't put them up in my editing room when I'm working on another film. And it's uh, what I do is, is have these printed images of selected moments from every camera position in a scene, 
And that's what I put up on the wall. So I'm either looking at the edited film on the screen or on the wall or hundreds of images from that scene. And I'll just kind of let my mind loose and, oh, that, yeah, I forgot about that. It's a, it's a way of getting a uh, kind of bird's eye view of the whole scene in a single glance. I think there's a lot of people that I've interviewed that have taken your, that methodology. I don't know whether you learned it from someone else or you right. came up with it yourself, but many people, right. like almost everybody I interview now does that. But nobody does it like you describe it where you're doing the setups. I used one on my last film, but it's one shot from every scene, mm-hmm. not one shot from every setup, yeah. which I think is really interesting because it helps you edit the scene. Right. Whereas I think the cards that I put up help me when I get to the story structure right. point where I'm going, oh, right. I think we got to lose yeah, that Yeah, no, that's scene. valuable. I, I use a card structure for that, but I don't use an image from the scene. I just use a, a color for the, that scene. The, the emotional color of the scene mm-hmm. prompts me to choose a certain colored index card, and then I write five or six words maximum to get the idea, and then I also vary the size of the card depending on how big a scene it is. Oh, that's very Small, interesting. large, and if it's a really crucial turning point, then I, I put the, the card at on an uh, angle. 45 degrees so it looks like a diamond. Wow. Which is to say that's everything before that comes to this scene and now it's a pivot and everything after is different. It's kind of like the elbow of the film. That's kind of like a flow chart for a, a computer program. Right. They do the same thing where, you know, it goes line, 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 then boom, something. Right. Yeah, it's very really, similar. That's very interesting. I, I do the color thing as well. I, I color my scenes right. so that you know here's a bunch of happy scenes or right, a bunch exactly. of dramatic. No, it's very valuable. I mean, since you do it, you know, but for somebody reading this, it if you imagine a wall full of nothing but white cards all the same size, you walk into the room in the morning and what does that tell you? Nothing. Mm-hmm. You have to read each card to know where you are. Whereas if, it's, if you've chosen different colors and different sizes and different orientations, then that's another example of what I'm talking about in that you're pickling yourself in the juice of the film when you walk in to the film in the morning and that's what you see. Do you do anything else like that? Like with music, I, uh, on a couple of films, not all of them, I've just every day that I'm going in to, to edit, I listen to sound, the temp soundtracks that I've Yeah, I, I do that. Yeah. I sit with the director when we watch dailies, and if he has something to say about a particular moment, I note it. And say, that doesn't really help you too much about specifics because there's so, so few of those things. But right. knowing what they think about this moment tells you about these other moments too, right. correct? Tell yeah. me a little bit about well, it. Well, it's, I, I will even, if the director scratches his head a lot during a scene, I will note that uh, because that tells me something's bothering him about this scene, even though he may say, this is great, some, there's some dissonance there. Mm-hmm. Just anything you can use to uh, help you distinguish this shot from all of the other shots as illogical as some of those things are, will work months later when you're looking at those notes for some reason. Oh yeah, that, I remember that. It, it puts you back in the moment. Whereas 
I mean, the worst thing is, is simply to write good or no good because that doesn't tell you anything other than a kind of binary information. And we all know that what was no good three months ago may be very good now because the whole story may have shifted. Something that, for whatever reason, seemed to not work now might be the, exactly the thing that you need. I remember that as a quote from one of the books. So if, if you think something is not working, just write down why it's not working because that might be the thing that you have to get back to. You mentioned that you're surprised by the way other editors work um, sometimes, but it has to be extreme. Can you think of any of those things that you were surprised? You don't have to call out a name, but that you were surprised by the way another editor worked? I was at a panel with Richard Harris, who had cut Titanic. Yeah. And somebody asked that, well, what's funny about the way you work? And uh, Richard uh, said, I cut from the end of the scene forward, or backward, rather. Hmm. So he decides what's the last shot, and then decides, how do I get to this shot? I'll use this shot. How do I get to that shot? I'll use this shot. So certainly uh, it's, it's absolutely a, a defensible way of working. I don't work mm -hmm. that way, but it's fascinating to uh, hear him talk about it. And Dee Dee Allen would pay no attention to the picture at all and would cut the dialogue for a dialogue scene, just like a radio show. And then she'd give it to Richie Marks or somebody, here, put some picture to this. I do just the opposite. I cut the picture without any reference to sound. And I imagine what it is that they're saying. I've, I've seen the dailies with sound and taken notes. And I can lip read, so I, I know. But I don't want to, in a weird way, I don't want to be distracted by the dialogue at that early stage, by the sound of the dialogue mm -hmm. at that early stage. It can affect your rhythm. Because it's also, as we know, that it's not the finished soundtrack. It's just the dialogue that they said. And sometimes it's not, you know, all due respect to the sound recorders, there might be problems with the sound, and that's distracting. So by cutting it silent, I can imagine in some weird prefigurative way what the final sound will be. Of course, I am cutting the sound at the same time because it's, that's one of the great benefits of cutting in a, non, in a digital uh, workstation. And so then at a certain point, after I've assembled the scene and recut it maybe once, sometimes twice, silent, I'll flip on the sound. And then sometimes I get very happily surprised by the accidental juxtapositions mm. of what happened. I might have taken a reaction shot from later in the scene and used it earlier in the scene, but it's got the dialogue from later in the scene. <laughs> That's not bad, actually. Um, so, uh, it, you know, it's, the, it's those kind of peculiarities. David Lean cut that way, without mm. sound. Joe Walker, that cut Arrival and a couple others, he does that often, cuts mute, as he calls it. You mentioned, and I thought this was really interesting, because I've done this, I've made this mistake, so I appreciate this lesson from you, which is, if you try to correct the film while you're putting it together, you end up chasing your own tail. Right. That's really interesting to me because I have done that. So yeah. what's the danger and what's the problem with trying to do that? Well, it's, it's, as we were talking earlier, the evolution of each scene is unpredictable because of strengths and weaknesses of 
performances and the weather that happened to be that day, which is, it was raining and they wanted sun, but they shot it anyway. Other things come into play and the natural tendency of a human being is to say, oh, that doesn't work so well. I'll, I'll think about how I can fix it. But you haven't seen the finished film altogether yet. And so your information is restricted because you're cutting out of sequence, because they're shooting out of sequence, and you haven't gotten to the final fade-out or whatever it is. Let's say the edited first assembly seems to be rising up above the horizon, so to speak, and your tendency is, oh, I can push that down. Well, unbeknownst to you, when the next scene is shot two weeks later, that scene does the pushing down for you. So you didn't need to push it down, but because you pushed it down, when you cut the next scene in, the that goes even further right, the, down. The whole thing's flat. Right, right. and, and it, so it's, it's like, as they say, pushing a piece of string. It's what I call the first assembly, cutting with your eyes half closed in the sense, you obviously have to make decisions. You can't mm -hmm. cut blind. On the other hand, you can't at that stage apply all of your critical instincts mm -hmm. because you just don't know enough at that stage. The classic example of that was, for me, was in Ghost, uh, where the Tony Goldwyn character, whose name will come to me in a second. Anyway, he's trying to seduce Demi Moore, who has just been recently widowed. We, the audience, see him purposely pour coffee on his shirt, and then he goes, oh shit, I poured coffee on me. And Demi says, oh, we can wash the shirt. So he takes off his shirt, and now he's sitting there shirtless, saying seductive things to Demi Moore. And when the studio executives saw that scene, what they saw in dailies was Tony Goldwyn shirtless over and over again in medium shot and close up. And they got it into their heads that he wasn't just shirtless, he was naked. Doesn't make any sense, but that's, they said, audiences are gonna think he's naked. We can't have that. And it, they went so far as to say, he's not a good actor, we have to f cast somebody else in the role. Mm. So it was kind of a fire alarm crisis. Like, they wanna get rid of, me, of Tony Goldman, who's doing a perfectly wonderful job. So it was a, one of those side effects of a studio executive looking at dailies where Without you see context. the same shot over and over again, mm -hmm. and when you cut the scene together, that's not how it's going to be. So I cut the scene together. Uh, you know, we're still shooting the film, but there's this crisis. And walking home one evening, I thought, hmm, you know, we could cut this whole scene out because of what happens later. We could have Sam go into the subway. I, I forget the structure of thing, but. In fact, it was a way of making it disappear without a trace. It's an important scene, but it seemed like a crisis. So I told Jerry Zucker, the director, you know, we can do this. He said, okay, do it, just to take the heat off for the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did it, and that kind of calmed things down. There is a solution short of recasting the main actor. When we looked at the first assembly of the film, I had just left that structure in. And everything worked fine, but when it came to the end of the film, with Tony Goldwyn being dragged off 
by demons into hell, it seemed like, well, he's being punished too much. He was just a you know, kind of hapless middle-class kid who got in over his head and something went wrong and Sam got killed. And it's tragic, but he doesn't need to die. Mm-hmm. It looks quite so, you know, his soul doesn't need to go to hell is how you felt at the end of the film. It was just me and Jerry and Bruce watching the first assembly, Bruce Rubin, the the screenwriter. After the screening, we were looking at this without the shirt scene. Let's put that back and look at it again. And so when we did that, oh, now it all made sense Mm -hmm. because his crime was not to try to steal the money. Of course, that's a crime, but morally, the real crime was to try to after the death of his best friend, to then try to seduce the widow of his best friend. Mm-hmm. That was the, the thing that, where he needed to be dragged down by these monsters. Which is the, an, a great example of that thing that happens with screening audiences so often, where right. the screening audience would say, oh, I don't think this guy should have been dragged to hell. But then if you put in this shot, if they're not complaining about the dragging to hell scene. They're actually complaining that they're missing... Right. Something else. It's, it's or, what in medicine is called referred pain. The, the pinched nerve in your shoulder shows up as a pain in your elbow. And the, the danger is that the preview audience will say, fix the elbow. But the problem is not in the elbow. It's, it's somewhere else. We'll return in a moment with more from my discussion with Walter Murch. Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, But sometimes having storage isn't enough, because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing, and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Every system comes with built-in software so you can search, tag, and preview all your storage backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected, and integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut Pro 10, all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off of a new EVO system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. We now return to my discussion with Walter Murch. You have to have an intuition about the craft to begin with. For me, it begins with where is the audience looking? You need to be doing something more than just acting as the audience, as the editor. Are you just the surrogate for the audience? Well, no, because you have much, much more information than the audience. Uh, has. And ideally, I think what you're trying to create for the audience is a sustained deja vu experience in the sense if you've ever experienced that, you have this feeling, this is uncanny, it's it's happening, but you don't know what's going to happen next. But when it happens, you say, 
Yes, and then that's what happened. The audience should not know exactly where the film is going. They should be surprised. But when it happens, they should feel, oh, that's exactly what should happen. But you can't ask them about that in advance because they don't know. We know, and so we're always one step ahead of them, kind of sucking them further along in, into the story. You say, where music makes an entrance in a film, there's an emotional equivalent of a cutaway. I was really interested in that. How, how do you think that that works as a cutaway? Well, a cutaway is, is cutting to something that gives you a different perspective on the moment. You know, a wide shot or somebody else reacting or even the landscape through which these people are walking. You know, mm. And we don't, for a moment, hear their dialogue. We just see them in the space. That's, that's what I meant by cutaway. So it, it, the, the music adds another, uh, when it comes in, it's adding another dimension that allows you to have, a, if, it, if it's well written and it's the right music, it allows you to have a different perspective on what it is that you're looking at. In Star Wars, when Luke, after the death of the two, the aunt and the uncle, he's standing there looking at the two sons of this mm -hmm. Tatooine. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a moment that's completely understandable on its own terms. He's, he's become a, a double orphan. and We never know what happened to his real parents, but he's not with them. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, when the music comes in there, it's, it's talking about much more universal things than just this particular individual. It's talking about somebody at the, a young person at the point of destiny where their life is going to take a big shift. Mm. And the two sons kind of add this other worldly element to it, remind you that you're not in a desert on earth. This is somewhere else. Um, I'm gonna play devil's advocate with a question here. So um, in, uh, the conversations, it was asked of you, I know you usually read original novels that the films you work on are based, and that's kind of that steeping yourself that you mentioned earlier, steeping right. yourself in the film. I've heard other editors say they absolutely do not do it. They don't look at another at movie, they don't read the, the source material. What's the value and the danger in those two things? Yeah, no, it, it is dangerous. It's certainly, I, I would read the novel of the English patient, but I read it you know, a couple of months before I ever worked on the film and before I ever re read the screenplay. Oh, they're going to make this film and I'm being considered for the job of editor. Read the novel. It lays down a uh, layer of undercoat, so to speak. I don't fully remember everything in the novel, but I'm aware of some of the decisions in a kind of intuitive way of why there were no scenes with Kip learning how to be a bomb disposal person, which are in the novel and not in the film. And so the, I feel almost atavistically kind of the, the absence of that, but it's not ever something conscious. And I, I don't read the novel while I'm working on the film. I don't even read the script when I'm editing the film. I've, I've read the script, but I, when I look at the dailies, I pretend that it's a documentary. Oh, look, somebody left some material here overnight. I wonder if we can make a scene out of it. 
I, I hardly even look at the script supervisor's notes. I have to have them in case there's a problem. And I also will refer to the script. If, if there's something I really don't get, why did they do this? Did they do this in the screenplay or is this, did they, hmm, oh, I'll read the script. Oh yeah, they did do that. Well, I wonder, hmm, you know. But in general, I, I, I rely on my memory of both the script and the novel, if there was a novel. You mentioned in Unbearable Lightness, we never took that film down in length, that's Unbearable Lightness. The Godfather, Francis cut it down to two hours and 20 minutes, but it was clear it didn't work at that length. Then when we restored the length, somehow having gone so deep, it didn't come back exactly where we had before. We learned things by going that far. Right. I'm really interested in that. Can you talk a little bit about either what you learned on that specific thing or what could it have taught you if you can't remember the specifics? Right. It, there's a similar thing in, uh, with directors of photography where they will, uh, let's say, blink the key light. So here's a scene that has four sources of light. The key is the main source. And sometimes in the, when you're getting ready to call the director back in, just as a check, you'll say, turn the key light off. Let me see again what the other lights are really doing now. Okay, okay, good. Uh, kill the second inky. Now turn the key, okay, much better. So by removing something that seemed essential, you can see the residue of what's left. Sometimes uh, you turn the key light off and say, I love it without the key light. And you call the director in and discuss, and that's what they go with. So there's editorial equivalence of that, where you, you cut out the very scene that seemed to be most important just to learn what's left. Yeah. The example I give in, in Blink of an Eye is from Julia, where we, after the preview, the audience seemed to be confused about where are we standing in this film? Because it was a flashback within a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. And there was just one too many. And so on the way back to uh, the cutting room, I thought, well, we could cut out the scene on Long Island in the 1950s, and that would remove one vertebra of this. And I proposed the idea to Fred, and he thought about it, and he said, okay, let's do that. He realized there was a problem with this concatenation of all these memories within memories within memories. And as we were removing the scene, we were working on a Steenbeck. Uh, I was unpeeling the tape because this was pre-digital. And he said, you know, when I read the screenplay, I got to this scene on page seven, and this was the scene that told me I could make this film. This was my entry point into the story. And I naturally hesitated because what are you telling me? <laughs> right, like that sounds like a critical scene. <laughs> right, and he said, no, no, cut it out, you, you, you know. And he made the analogy that certain scenes are heart scenes and other scenes are like umbilical cords. Both are important to allow you to be born. You, as a child, you have to have a heart, you have to have an umbilical cord, but 
we don't walk around with the umbilical cord. We walk around with the scar of that mm. amputation, which is our belly button. This scene for him was an umbilical cord. It got him into the movie, but once his sensibility was in the film, he realized the truth that it no longer needed this scene. And so, that, that could happen with, I mean, I, that does happen with scripts as well, right? You, sure. You get a script that gets the producers on board and the studio on board, and they all love this thing, but then once you get into cutting the film, you're like, we really don't need these particular scenes, not all of them at least. Right. You mentioned there were many screenings of the conversation that you had along the way where the audiences were completely flummoxed. I'm really interested because that's, you know, I do the same thing. It's a failure of like your objectivity or something. Like right. you thought the film worked and then you showed it to a screening audience and they're like, we don't get it. Right. I mean, it happens to a certain degree on every film. It was particularly true on the conversation because the conversation, the odd thing about the film, aside from the fact that it's about a kind of unattractive character in terms of a hero of a film, this, this emotionally repressed person who does this very technical job doesn't seem to be the, the natural hero <laughs> of a film. But that was the challenge that Francis wanted to achieve. But it was a mixture of a detective story of sorts and a character study of this person. And those two things are two metals that don't really alloy together very well. And that was, I think, what was confusing to the audience is that they couldn't, what is this? Is, is it a, if it's a thriller, then you don't need all this stuff about a guy who is essentially sort of a boring person. On the other hand, people also felt, oh, this is a really interesting story about somebody that has never had a film made about them before. You're hyperinflating it with this murder mystery stuff. The trick on the conversation was finding how to give just enough of, the, of one and then just enough of the other so that they were in as much of a harmonious balance as you could get. As you could get. And, and maybe the reason why I wrote The English Patient on the piece of paper was, um, did something happen similar with The English Patient where audiences were confused or? Yeah, there, there was a scene in the book and shot and edited where Kip goes crazy uh, because he hears the news of the bombing of Hiroshima and he holds everyone at gunpoint and has a rant about um, the West and its subjugation of the rest of the world. And you wouldn't have dropped the atomic bomb on Europe, you dropped it on Japan. And it was perfectly well written, perfectly well acted scene. There was nothing artistically, or, but it didn't fit in the film at that point in the story because we haven't been thinking about Hiroshima. And this seemed to come out of nowhere, Kip, because Kip seemed to be a perfectly balanced, he, he didn't have that as a chip on his shoulder. So um, then let's cut it out. But then the problem was after that scene, Kip is a transformed person. Mm. So we can't just cut it out. <laughs> what are we going to do? And it was 
uh, Edie Ichioka, my assistant, you know, we, we kind of went around in circles for about a week thinking, what, what are we going to do? We, we have to have some scene that will trigger his transformation. And she enigmatically said, you know, chief, which is what she called me, uh, a bomb is just a bomb. And what she was saying was, yeah, there's the atomic bomb, but there's also the booby trap bomb that kills Hardy, who is the sergeant who was working with Kip, Kip's assistant. And that could be enough to trigger kind of his sitting Shiva, in a sense, the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the Sikh version of that. He lets his hair down and he just goes quiet, won't talk to anybody. And that is enough to do it. I mean, it, it's a very good example of what I was talking about earlier with the, uh, the zoo animals transforming from a giraffe to an elephant. We took out a scene that was a major scene in character development. It was actually a scene that Michael Ondaccia, the author of the book, at a certain point said, whatever you do, don't cut that scene out, because it meant a tremendous amount to him, but you know, out it went. Nonetheless, the script gave us the raw material to solve the, that particular problem in a different way. We were able to transform the giraffe into the elephant. I was thinking about a very different thing that you mentioned, which was that you take on the storyboards, and you probably didn't have a storyboard on that one, but no, we did, you, you, did you turn, because that scene would have been a turn scene, right? right? That would have been a yeah. diagonal diamond scene, and right. I would think you can't cut those diagonal diamond right. scenes out. Yeah. That would be but, uh, difficult. What that really just says is at, at this point in the mm -hmm. line of the story, there has to be a diamond card. Yeah. And thanks to Edie, um, we put we a found different diamond that in there. It's, it's a, it was a diamond that involved one of the characters that we came to know and love in the film. And because those two guys, Hardy and Kip, they worked in a life threatening and bomb disposal, they loved each other too and his death by a bomb, you know, a booby trap. He was killed by the very thing that he normally would be disposing. Mm -hmm. So that all, that all resonated nicely with the, with the story. On Touch of Evil, when I started working on the project, I never expected that we could do everything he wanted to do. In my experience, even if you have all the necessary resources, you're lucky if 75% of the ideas pan out. A good rate of success for anybody's notes about a film. Right. What do you think that says about Orson Welles? Pretty amazing. Uh, the, the, that document, which you can get if you buy the Blu-ray or the DVD of Touch of Evil, uh, they include those 58-page... It, it's a fascinating document uh, because he's writing to the very people who were his enemies. He was writing to Ed Mull and uh, the head of the studio who had betrayed him in a sense and recut the film that he wrote and you know there are all kinds of tortured politics about this so it it was a very uh, carefully passionately written but diplomatically very astute document the, the tragedy is that we never really got to see what orson wells would have made of touch of evil this is it's not this is not the director's cut this is us doing what he said in that memo, what then should have happened is we would show that version to Orson and he would say either it's great or 
uh, okay, now that I see this, I want to change something else. Mm -hmm. But because he died in 1985, we never got to do that. Um, but you had to play that role for him by yeah, deciding whether the note was going to stay or go. Right. Right. Because otherwise you just do all the notes if it's right. a direct. I, I think I was mainly talking just, can we do this technically? Because we had no access to the what we were talking about earlier. The B negative mm -hmm. was destroyed for the film. We had the negative of the final version of the film released by Universal, and we had a manufactured negative of the preview version of the film, which is probably what Wells saw that mm -hmm. prompted these notes. It was discovered, I think, at UCLA in the library at UCLA sometime in the mid-70s, so almost 20 years after the film was made. Mm -hmm. So we made a negative out of that, and that, those were our resources. Michael asked you in the conversations, I wonder if you similarly are influenced by the other arts, and you said yes, they are the spark points, they are points of the phenomena of life. You're such an interesting person, I think, and you've got so many interests and mm -hmm. thoughts, and you're not just all about film. Talk to me about muses. So, so do you, what do you do to, to get yourself artistically um, motivated or involved in a film? Anything specific? Obviously, read the screenplay and talk to the director. I always write up, if not just for myself, also for the director, maybe eight or ten pages of notes on the screenplay. I parenthesize that by saying these are just top-of-the-head ideas where I th what I thought was really... I really was engaged here. Here I was a little confused. You may have something in mind as a director that I didn't quite get from the screenplay. Here, for whatever reason, I thought you might be able, maybe you could do this. Some idea, I'm just throwing these things out, not so much f for them themselves, but maybe when you hear these ideas, you, director, will get a third idea that is neither of us have thought of. So that allows me to get into it. I also time the screenplay. So like a script supervisor, I will take a day or two with a stopwatch and visualize the entire screenplay down to the second and make a database. And I do it twice. So I, I time it once and then I time it all again. Um, and then I, when I get the timing from the script supervisor, I put that into the database and see how they all correlate. And this part of the program that if there's wildly different times for a scene, that will rise to the top of the list. Mm. And, and I'll talk to the script supervisor and say, these three scenes, my timing is, I said 40 seconds, you say two minutes. What's going on? And I'll learn something. Either they'll say there's a mistake or They'll say, no, the director wants to do it, and this, we're going to linger very long on all of this, and it's not obvious from the screenplay, but whatever. The pacing changes. So just the, the effort of spending a day or two with a stopwatch, speaking the dialogue and pacing out the steps and putting the knives and forks down and you know shooting the guns and... Imagining the battles is another way of entering into the spirit on a deeper level.
you said you, you enjoy variety. I thrive on it, actually. And one of the things that I thought about when I read that was uh, your NLE of choice. <laughs> right. So you start, right, started on Lightworks originally, went mm-hmm. to N- No, not Lightworks. I thought you did for a while. No. I mean, obviously, Cam and, and Moviola. Moviola, the Avid. Right. I went to the Avid in, on English Patient. I went to Avid on English Patient. So you started in Avid. And then comes Cold Mountain, right? It was switched to Final Cut. Final Cut. Since then to Premiere or no? Crew 53 is Premiere. So I stuck with Final Cut up through Hemingway and Gellhorn. And that's when they brought in Final Cut 10 mm-hmm. X. And uh, after that, I cut Particle Fever and I used Final Cut 7, which by that time was a legacy zombie program no longer being supported. And after that, I went to Tomorrowland with Brad using the Avid and then went to Crew um, 53 and I used Premiere. What was the motivating choice to switch from Avid to Premiere? Um, I'm just a glutton for punishment. <laughs> uh, that's a joke. But no, I, I like variety. I, each NLE is, a, is like speaking a slightly different language. That's exactly how I describe it. Right. You, and I like speaking different languages. Uh, it makes you look at the material in a slightly different way. And I know there are wonderful editors who are absolutely not interested in that at all. You know, they're very comfortable with their Steinway, so to speak. And they would never play on a Yamaha. But I, I'm interested in that variety. And with Avid on Tomorrowland, I was amazed at how little it had changed. <laughs> and then yeah. even on Tomorrowland, it's still, oh, they still have that? What? You know. So I was just, I was interested in something else. And the nickname in those days for Premiere was Final Cut 8, meaning it's, what it would have been. It might have been this. Not completely true, but a lot of the people who were working at Apple migrated to Adobe at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, I, you know, it was a good experience. I uh, got to know the developers well, and they're very aggressive about supporting editors, much more so than my experience with Avid or uh, Final Cut was in the in the the mainstream years from Cold Mountain on. Um, we would get together at the end of a film, and I would say, "Here's what I've learned, and here's this might be good," but that would be every two years or so. Yeah. Whereas Premiere is constantly putting out new versions of it. Um, you said for me the most important, rhythmically, the most important decision of these three is the last. Where do you end the shot? So it's uh, the three things are right. what shot shall I use, where shall I begin it, and where shall I end it? Right. Uh, you end it at the exact moment in which it has revealed everything that's going to reveal in its fullness without being overripe. I love that. I just wanted to say the words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also wanted to hear, like, yeah. do, do you, can you expound on that Well, that's the, that's the shibboleth, in a sense, of uh, never scrubbing the film in order to find the cut point. And you, you still do that? You don't scrub? I don't scrub. That's really interesting. No, so I'll, okay, well, I'm going to use shot 32, or whatever it is, and here's a good point to start it. And then I'll run it, and it's telling me things. And then at a certain point, 
like the, the ripeness quotient gets to maximum, I will hit the stop button. And um, I've been doing some version of this since conversation, even though I was editing that on a chem. I was using the, the frame counter on that as a indicator of what frame did I stop on? Okay, that's where I that felt okay. Then I will rewind and run it again and hit again. If, if I hit the same frame twice, then that tells me that's probably a good cut point because it's impossible to do that in any other way than musically. 24 frames are going by a second. It's like you know, being at a penny arcade, shooting the ducks, going by at 24 ducks per second and shooting that duck. You can't do it. It's just too fast. But you can internalize the rhythm of the shot, the dialogue, the camera work, and <laughs> cut at that point. And if you can duplicate that, that means you're onto something. In the end, you might change it because of other factors, but for the moment, when you're assembling things, that feels good. If it doesn't feel good, mm, that, that seemed too soon. Now look at the time code, and you'll see, oh yeah, that was three frames early. What that does is tell you, for this film, for this shot, that's what three frames feels like. So you're teaching yourself you're trying to pick up the rhythmic signature of this film, and that's a very good way to do it. We'll wrap it up there for this week. Please join me soon for our final conversation with Merch, which will consist of questions from fellow editors from Blue Collar Post Collective. For more editing wisdom from more than 200 of the world's top editors, check out ProVideoCoalition.com or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. And be sure to check out my other podcast, Voices from Sundance, with the editors of the latest buzzworthy indie films. Thanks again to my guest, Walter Merch ACE. Keep an eye out for our final conversation with Walter in the coming weeks. I'm Steve Hullfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.